Hello and welcome back to Career Corner, where it's my belief that you are the CEO of your career. Today is October 2nd, 2020, and I am your host, Jonathan Mars. In our second episode, I interview Megan Arend, who is easily one of the most talented people that I have personally ever worked with. Megan is currently a senior product manager at Nautilus Labs, where she participates in their mission to advance the efficiency of ocean commerce. In our discussion, Megan and I cover a lot of ground and she offers great insights around the following, how to advocate for yourself by asking for what you want, the importance of taking career chances, even when it's scary, the significance of persistence, but also knowing when to walk away, doing more with less, the burden of leadership, the importance of empathy in your career, and also even her morning routine and how to get your brain firing on all cylinders before starting work. Finally, her answer to an important question most tech companies care about and what wowed many of my colleagues at the company we worked at and much, much more. I do want to apologize for some slight turbulence about 58 minutes into our interview. It's a user error on my part. I cleaned it up in the editing process, but apologies if Megan discussing her torn ACL is a little choppy. That's totally my fault. And related, this is only our second Career Corner podcast episode. So if you are getting value out of these conversations, I would be honored if you would share it with your friends, your family, and various corners of the internets. I welcome all feedback, especially critical, and you can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Mars. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Megan Arend, Senior Product Manager at Nautilus Labs. Megan. Welcome to Career Corner. Hi, thank you. I'm really, I'm really excited to catch up. It's it's been a while since we've seen each other, and definitely would love to talk about how how COVID's been treating you. But I thought we could start with uh, the text I sent you a couple weeks ago, and I'll sort of tee it up from what was going on here. And so, for those who don't know, I, I live in Charleston, South Carolina. Megan, you live in uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. And so two Sundays ago, and Charleston is a, is a bit of a, uh, a pretty big port town. And so they have like two or three ports. But one is Wando Port uh, on the Wando River, which I used to actually live near. And so two Sundays ago, I believe the Brazil came into town and was going to dock at the Wando Port. And as far as I know, it is the Brazil is the biggest sort of, uh, what would you call them, like the cargo ships to hit the East Coast. And so on Sunday, everyone was on the beaches watching this mammoth ship come in. And so I text you because I know that you work at Nautilus Labs and your new role, which you haven't been in for too long, and I'll I'll let you talk to us about it, is is sort of like following and helping these big cargo ships get 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 around the world. And essentially this, this ship came in, it was dropping some stuff off and then it was going to go right to China. So I thought that was, that would be like a good way to sort of kick off kind of what you're doing right now. And actually like tangibly, you know, if you live in Charleston, South Carolina, like this, this was a big event and you can actually see this thing come in. So I'll stop there, but I'd love to hear about like your, cause this was one of your ships. So maybe we can start there and then back out to what you're doing right now. Yeah, so th- so that you're correct. That was a ship called the Brazil. 
It's owned by a company called CMA CGM. And it is, as far as I've seen in the little research that I've done, the biggest container ship to hit the East coast of the United States, uh, ever. So when you sent me that, I, I could see the, the logo on the side of the ship from the article clip. And I thought, Oh, is this one of our ships and clicked on it? Sure enough, it was. So what my company Nautilus labs does now, and what I mean when I say it's one of our ships is, uh, we have a platform that is a, a tool to help ship owners and shipping companies manage the performance of their fleets. And by fleets, I mean, you know, these huge transoceanic vessels that take the goods that you and I consume on a day-to-day basis um, across oceans and all over the world. So we uh, have uh, an ability to take data from sensors that are on these ships and pair that with data that we can find externally, like weather service data or information about the commercial voyage that the ship is already on. And we combine that with our machine learning capabilities and then offer insights and tools for the owners of those vessels to improve their maintenance costs, uh, their fuel efficiency, and uh, the cost of actually running a voyage, which is pretty exciting. And there's this nice altruistic benefit as well in that by reducing fuel costs specifically, we reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which is um, something that I care about. So it's been a pretty rewarding jump for me in the last year or so. That's great. Thank you. And, you know, the way it works at the Charleston ports, they sort of come in from the Atlantic Ocean and there's two beaches, Isle of Palms and Sullivan's Island, and then they kind of go into the Cooper River which merges with the Wando river. And, and it's just ridiculous to see these huge ships <laughs> like going right by you. A couple things. One. So what, how big is Nautilus and what do you specifically do for them? Nautilus is about 35 people right now. So we're a pretty small startup. Uh, we're in our series A phase and I'm a product manager uh, for them. So My job is to listen to, acknowledge, and prioritize the problems that we hear from either our current customers or our future customers, and then work with our engineering and design teams to turn that into solutions and improvements to our product or enhancements that we can offer the client to actually solve those problems. So uh, that empathy and customer-facing side isn't too different than what I did in a different part of my career. I have a customer success background and um, now use that, but have a little bit more of a technical role at the organization. Got it. And like, so, so these are, these, as you said, are trans oceanic big companies. How do they, so do they come to you and say, Hey, we want to reduce greenhouse gases or, or probably more, you know, be, become more gas efficient. And so in that case where you, you've created fuel efficiency, which has led to, you know, an, a positive environmental impact, like, can you give me an example of like that problem and what you did and, and what led to that positive result? Like how does your product help with that? Yeah. So most of the companies that we work with are, 
the, the owners of vessels as opposed to what we would classify as charterers who are just renting the vessels, really. Uh, so the owners are interested in, they, they I, I won't say that they're not interested in greenhouse gas emissions, but the part that affects their bottom line is fuel costs. That's the by far the most expensive part uh, about running a, a vessel across oceans. And uh, the most expensive part of a voyage is the fuel cost. So they're, they're worried about keeping that cost low because it comes out of their pocket. Or if they've guaranteed to someone renting their boat that it will consume a certain amount of fuel at a certain speed, they'll be liable whenever it doesn't actually meet that, that mileage, for lack of a better term. So you might think of this in the same way that you rent a car. You would expect it to get a certain mileage, and if you don't, you might hit up whoever you rented it from to say, I spent a lot more on fuel over this week than you told me I would. I'm going to give you a claim. So their motivations are really coming from fuel costs and also maintenance costs. So the more you run certain parts on the ship unnecessarily, the more hours accrue against that part. And then at a certain number of hours, you need to take maintenance. And that's quite expensive because some maintenance events you need to uh, dock the ship. You can't do that while it's on a voyage. Others are, are easier to do. You can, you can take those maintenance events while the ship's actually running, but um, you don't want to have to do them unnecessarily. So our platform helps with those problems because we can monitor the usage of these various mechanical components. We can see how much fuel each, is a, each of them is consuming. And in some cases, we can even um, predict quite accurately how optimal or not the fuel usage and usage of the part in general was for that particular vessel. And we can compare and say, here's what actually happened and here's what should have happened or would have happened in an optimal scenario. The difference between those two uh, represents a whole lot of money and we can give a, a fairly accurate picture of money that was left on the table uh, by not operating the vessel optimally or perhaps engaging in the most optimal route etc got it so how does your customer use a ui directly or do you do you have like client facing folks that are sort of on the account sharing this stuff with them and meeting them with them regularly is it is it more self-service or is it, you know, they, they have folks pushing them insights and, and what they should, should be doing or some combination of the two or something else? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. It's a combination of the two. So uh, a couple of our, our offerings and products have been built based off of those, those manual insights being generated where we have a team that's noticed something, let's keep it an eye on the data that we have coming off and has been making recommendations manually either a couple months or in maybe a year or so. And then we'll productionalize that and make it a part of our platform. So there are some parts that we're still in the process of doing that for where it is backed and run by a services team at the moment. There are others that are completely self-serve where a client can go in and uh, introspect into they, they can introspect into almost every um, every piece of data that we have access to on our platform directly themselves. It's some of those insights that are still uh, being generated by a services team that we're in the 
process of productionalizing and making completely self-service right now. Got it. And is that, that industry that you, your company services, is, is it, is it, are there like big whale clients that sort of down, you know, is it like a Facebook, Apple, Google situation, or is it more like where you have those sort of anchor clients in an industry or is it a little more long tail or, or mid market? Like, and what, what is your client base right now? We, uh, I'm happy to say just got a couple of our Facebook, Apple, Googles in the last couple of months, which was great. Uh, we'd have, thank you. We'd had some really strong anchor clients that were, uh, big in the, the shipping industry, but that aren't names that you might've heard outside of the industry. And just recently we, we did get a couple of really big whales that would be recognizable names too your average Joe, which is pretty mm-hmm. exciting for us. So the, the, one more question here, and then I want to uh, take a step back. Your, your customers, not, not you guys, but your customers, right? So that Brazil ship came into Charleston and it was going to China. Given COVID-19, do your customers behave any different than, than, you know, earlier this year? Like, is that something that they're talking about or thinking about, or is it sort of business as usual? Uh, our customers were definitely impacted at the beginning of the year in that ships just couldn't go places. The ports were shut down. Um, if you left port, you weren't sure where you could land. So ships just weren't moving. And there was a lockup of I, maybe you notice this as a consumer, but just a lockup of goods that weren't crossing oceans. Um, so that definitely impacted our clients' uh, businesses for sure, because they're not getting revenue for transporting those goods. Um, since things have started to open back up and commerce has became, become more stable, I, I think the trend that we've noticed is that the the big whales, not to use a nautical uh, a relevant term. It's, okay. it's, it's hard to avoid. I love the um, keep them, keep them coming. <laughs> the, uh, the big whales are really starting to think about long-term, um, cost savings and they see us as an opportunity to actually gain those savings because, um, our, our fees look small potatoes in comparison to what they'd be gaining. Whereas some of the smaller shipper shipping companies um, might be thinking a little bit more of immediate cost cutting measures um, and less, uh, less eager to sign on to say um, a SAS contract because for them, that money is a lot more meaningful. So fortunately for us, like I said, we have had a lot of those really um, large companies sign on as clients recently and, um, that's, that's been strong in the last, I'd say th- three to four months, which has been great. Yeah, that's great. And I was, I was sort of wondering if they like spray the containers down or anything with, with something, but I, I uh, imagine that's hard to do. You know, I, I don't actually know what a lot of those measures have been. Um, I would imagine that there's there have been a lot of the same compliance measures that you and I experience on land, particularly because crews have to change on these ships. But that's a good question. I don't actually know uh, what's been going on sanitation wise. 
No worries. And, and I, I got to say, it's I'll be on the beach building a sandcastle with my son and one of these huge things come in and, and it's, it's cool to think of, Oh, that's Megan right there. She's making sure <laughs> that, uh, and I, and, and we did an overnight in Savannah, Georgia once, and there's a river, I guess it's the, you know, it's the Savannah river. I'll have to fact check that. But I mean, they come, I mean, they're impressive if, if you haven't seen them. And that, that was my reaction. It's like, it's cool to see commerce at work. Uh, at that kind of scale. So it's, it's cool. I'm, I, I totally get why you left um, to, to pursue that. And, and so let's, let's kind of start at the beginning. And I know that you grew up in Sacramento, California, which per my research, I think is called America's most diverse city. One, is that true? And, and two, uh, true two, is it true in, in its sense of that, phrase or were they just early to the game but either way i'd love to just you know go all the way back and tell us about growing up in california uh i think at one point it was definitely true and i think that label came around uh in the in the 90s or so and it it very well could be true and i will say that there are there's an amazing uh variety of populations in Sacramento. It, it is a melting pot. I'm not sure how it compared to other, to other cities these days, but it was definitely a diverse place growing up and it, it remains that way. Um, I loved growing up in Sacramento. I didn't quite appreciate it, I think at the time, but uh, with, with distance, my nostalgia has grown and it was a lovely mid-sized town to grow up in. I was very close to my extended family, grew up with a lot of cousins um, because my parents are both from Sacramento. And so we had a very tight knit crew there. And um, I've started to appreciate now that I live in a really big city, what some of the benefits of a mid-sized city is. I'm sure you can also recognize since you're in Charleston, the benefits that a mid-sized city have to offer. You know, you can walk to bars and restaurants, but you can also have a yard um, and things like that. Yeah, and, and has Sacramento been affected by the fires at all? In terms of air quality, yes. Uh, as far as proximity goes, no. There's uh, my parents and Sacramento in general is fortunate not to have uh, big forested areas uh, directly s- surrounding the city. Um, the, there. Are towns 20 minutes 30 minutes away they're definitely vulnerable to that but the city itself has largely been affected by air quality as opposed to worrying about structures catching fire because it it creeps in from uh, the surrounding area got it and speaking of fire I, i i i'm personally a huge fan of your parents uh but why don't you, why don't you, and I know they had that big impact on your life. Can we talk a little bit about your parents and sort of the, you know, how you were raised and maybe some of the values they instilled in you. And then I know that Lake Tahoe sort of means a lot to your family. So if, if we could touch on that a little bit and then we'll, we'll move on to your departure to the East coast. Yeah. So my, so my dad is a firefighter. My mom is a fire marshal. Um, and so I grew up in a very strict household because everyone was afraid of things catching fire or 
as a firefighter, you've gotten a lot of medical calls and drug driving calls and things like that. So my parents, um, you know, ruled with the iron fists, but um, did instill a lot of um, a lot of values that I've come to appreciate as an adult. I think the one that that stands out to me the most is is hard work and and putting your head down, um, which is not to say that I didn't benefit in my life from an enormous amount of privilege. Like I got to go to private schools that my parents paid for and, um, you know, lived in a neighborhood that was pretty free of crime. And we will talk about college, but, um, outside of that, they, um, they did really instill hard work in both me and my sister. Um, I was just saying recently to a friend that I wasn't allowed to quit much. Um, I had to really make a case for it if I wanted to quit. And I don't think that was simply because they were being hard asses out of principle, but because they wanted us to experience struggling and then overcome that. And they had faith that we could overcome it. And if we were really miserable and we tried it a couple times and we still didn't like it or it wasn't working for us, sure, then we were allowed to quit. But there, there wasn't a lot of easy tapping out. And I'm I'm thankful for that now as an adult, because I think it's, it's taught me some persistence getting through tough situations or working with difficult people and things like that. Yeah. And I I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, my uh, two years ago, my daughter, so my daughter did a year of dance class and we had a recital and it was good. And then the next year she didn't want to do dance. So she didn't do dance. And then the year after she said she wanted to do dance again, even though she had been pretty vocal about not liking it. So we said, okay, we'll sign you back up. And I'll never forget. I was in New York and my wife called me and said, Hey, uh, I just, you know, autumn had dance. And she just said, I don't want to do it. And this is in September when dance typically starts. So she's only one Mm -hmm. or two classes in. And she, you know, my wife was like, what do you think? And I said, she's got to, she's got to finish. And it's going to be miserable for everyone because we're going to have to take her and she doesn't want to do it. And, you know, it's, it's a long year to the recital, but I felt that was an important lesson to teach her. And I think it's one year, one you're referencing with your parents that will hopefully, kind of shape her in a positive way of like, look, if you, if you say you're going to do something, you've, you've got to do it. You've got to finish because we paid money or whatever. Uh, even if you don't want to, because you already knew you didn't really want to do it. So, you know, we'll see how it plays out, but, uh, I definitely get that from your parents and, and, uh, it worked for you and your sister for sure. Yeah. Uh, I will say they took it a little far sometimes. Like I remember this one time my, so I, w- I had braces as a kid fairly early, like much earlier than a lot of the other kids in my grade. And I needed headgear and I was, I had just had the little inserts installed and I was told I had to wear it at night only, but I needed to wear it every night. And if I didn't wear it every night, I just have to have it longer. And I got this whole talking to by the orthodontist with my dad present. And that night was a Friday and I had a sleepover for my two best friends who are twins, their birthday party. And my dad's like, you got your toothbrush, you know, you got your socks, you got this, that. Yep. Yep. And he's like, you got your headgear. And I was like, no. 
And he was like, well, you heard Dr. Stassi, you have to wear it every night, no exceptions, and it starts today. And I, you know, flipped out and I was like, I can't believe you're doing this to me. You know, I, I was probably 12. And sure enough, we went to that sleepover and he gave my friend's mom a tutorial on how to clip me into the headgear. And as you can tell, I have never let him live this down and have not forgiven him for it. But so I'd say there's a balance to strike with Autumn. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tame my inner grumpy old man for sure. <laughs> Do you, you, how was high school? I know you played volleyball. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but feel free to, you know, uh, you know, talk to us about like playing volleyball, the lessons that taught you, and then maybe sort of where you decided to go to college and play. Uh, yeah. So I went to a, an all girls Catholic school. So that definitely shaped, um, definitely, definitely, I think my shyness. Um, but also, uh, and I mean around, uh, the opposite sex, but it's, uh, on the same token really helped me feel comfortable speaking my mind and not, um, shying away from certain opinions or, um, thoughts or questions that I might have because I might feel foolish, um, embarrassing myself in front of, um, boys, you know, which is the sex I'm attracted to, I guess that could have worked out in the opposite way as well. But, um, I went to an all girls Catholic school and that had the same level of strictness. And I think mirrored a lot of the same values that my parents, uh, raised us with because, uh, I was raised Catholic and I did play volleyball. Um, and in high school, you know, I, there, there wasn't much going on in my life aside from school and volleyball. And those were my focuses. Um, and that kept me out of trouble and, um, you know, definitely helped, helped me get good grades and that set me up for other things in life. But I, in high school, I was very much a keep my head down and do my homework and largely follow the path that I've been given. And I don't really feel like I blossomed much until, um, I got to college and then even out of college, um, which I, as you alluded to, was at Fordham. I, I went to Fordham um, to play volleyball, which is on the East Coast here in New York. It's in the Bronx. And um, I felt when I got to the East Coast, I there's just a whole different world opened up to me that I never knew existed in my fairly sheltered, small, um, you know, small, relatively speaking, town of Sacramento. And then my my smaller bubble of this, this all-girls Catholic school. So that was um, definitely a pivotal moment in my life that moved to the East coast and um, getting to explore New York city and just see what else was out there in the world. So a couple things there, you know, it at its face, like if, if my parents were like, Hey, you're going to go to this all boys school, it would, it would just sound terrible. And I, <laughs> I, I'd love to, <laughs> hear a little bit more about the merit like why is why is that why wouldn't that be so terrible but also maybe can you unpack a little bit how that those high school formative years helped you speak your mind because I I do you know we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how we know each other a little later but you know how can you kind of unpack like what what's an example of you you know that experience 
giving you the confidence to, to speak your mind in different scenarios. Yeah. So to your first question, there's, there were definitely aspects about going to an all girl school that were painful. Um, as like a pubescent team, it, it was rough. And sometimes, um, a lot of times I think I could have benefited from interaction with boys at a younger age or at least more frequent interactions. Um, the, the benefit though that I meant is that at, at the all girls school I went to every single position in student government, um, in clubs and extracurricular activities, every, um, kind of, foot soldier position and leadership position was filled by a girl. And so it never occurred to me in high school that I couldn't do something because I was a girl. I could, the only people doing things were girls. And that, that distinction just was, was never an obstacle to me. It didn't even cross my mind in any of the extracurricular or, or normal, um, you know, on, on campus uh, schoolwork type activities that I was doing. In addition, a lot of the um, leaders at the school itself were women. I think there was a fairly good mix of men and women teaching. I, I'd say it was probably close to 50 50. Um, but we had really strong examples of, of female leaders, like our principal and our chairman um, were women. A lot of them had actually gone to our school. And then all of the speakers that we had at our school coming in externally to tell us about their careers or um, their experiences. Like we had people come in to speak for ethics classes and things like that. Those were also all women. Um, I can think of very few examples where we had an external male speaker coming in. And I think that that was intentional because it was, again, building um, this consensus that yes, we can do all of these things, like, because we see the examples all around us. And that was really empowering. Um, something that I didn't realize was empowering really until later in life, like as a teenager, I don't know that I was aware of that, but looking back on it, I think that that definitely instilled a sense of confidence in me that I, I feel fairly comfortable attributing to having gone to an all girls school. Got it. That makes sense. It was almost, it was just normalized, right? Because mm-hmm. you just saw it everywhere. That's really cool. Thank you for unpacking that. I don't want to jump to the East Coast without acknowledging the fact that that's a huge change from Sacramento, California to, you know, essentially New York City, Bronx, via Fordham. Why did you go to Fordham and and now you're you're back in a co-ed environment and, and how are how is that first semester while you're you know, playing volleyball and sort of getting used to the other side of a country and, and, you know, but, but why, why go there? I, yeah, I got a mail brochure from Fordham that was sent to my parents' house in Sacramento. And up until that point, I had only applied to California colleges and had only intended on applying to California colleges. I, I think I was focused a little naively on, weather and what I knew. Um, so I'd visited all, most of the colleges that I'd visited were in California. And then we visited a few in Oregon just because that was what was in driving distance and within my family's budget. Um, so Fordham had sent a brochure to the house and 
I intercepted that, I think, before anyone had picked up the mail that day and said, oh, you know, they offered me a free application. Like, I just need my, um, you know, my name and my social security number. And I think to assign, attach an essay, which I'd already written. So I did that on my own without telling my parents because I didn't have to pay for the application and therefore didn't need to ask for their credit card, um, you know, to fill in the online form. So I did that, kind of forgot about it. And then this package arrived in the mail. And this time my dad picked up the mail and he was like, what's, what's this school that you applied to Fordham university? It's in New York. And I was like, Oh yeah. Whoops. I forgot to tell you guys. Like I, I applied there. Um, and, and he was like, okay, well, uh, you know, we opened it up together and started looking through the papers and he was like, well, you know, this school didn't offer you the type of financial packages that some of these others did. Like maybe you should write the volleyball coach and see if they have an open position, um, which in, in the position that I played, which was called the libero. And I was like, okay. So I, I still didn't know how interested I was in this school, but I was like, all right, I'll take my dad's advice. So I emailed the volleyball coach and told him who I was and attached, um, you know, some clips that I had of myself playing and some stats. And he got back to me and said that they did actually have a position, um, open for the libero spot. And, um, he was going to be in, um, Las Vegas at this tournament. Would, would my team be playing there that upcoming weekend? And it happened that we would be. So, um, he came and watched me play and, uh, I went out for a visit on the East coast with my parents and we saw a school and I met the team and had a really great time and, you know, had loved what I'd experienced. So that plus the opportunity to play volleyball in college. And, um, I got a, a two year scholarship out of it was what eventually pushed me to go to the East coast. And that first semester was r- rough. Um, not so much because of the, the, the co-ed change. I think like over high school, I'd started like, gradually to expand my social circle um, but more because I was really far away from home. The weather was a huge adjustment. I felt like I was sick all the time because I just hadn't experienced weather that cold ever. Um, I wasn't properly clothed. Like I didn't have the right type of coat or I didn't really get the benefit of gloves or hats just then. <laughs> um, it's so yeah. miserable winter, let's be honest. Yeah. And, um, and, and managing a volleyball schedule is really tough, especially in that first semester in college, because that first semester I think is so critical to establishing friend groups, um, especially when you're traveling as much as you are. So like it was a real struggle for me to make sure that I was not just um, that I wasn't just like limiting myself to the small circle on the volleyball team, but also that I was making sure to branch out and try to make friends in the limited time that I had in my dorm or in other avenues around campus um, yeah, so a big adjustment for, for many reasons, but I was very homesick that first, that first semester. Were there any life lessons volleyball taught you? Um, yeah, I, in volleyball, I was often the underdog and there were many times when I, when I thought about quitting. Um, and I think, and I think during those times where I was on had an inflection point where I could have quit 
my parents would probably have been more supportive because they'd seen me struggle with it for so long. You know, I was, I'm not the tallest person. I uh, was a fairly scrawny kid. I don't have like, you know, an abundance of muscle mass that I was just born with. Um, I was fast, but I was, um, I wasn't, I don't think I'm a, a natural athlete. My dad is quick to remind me of this because he's seen how klutzy I can be. Like, um, I really had to work for my athleticism and coaches I think could see that. And, um, as a result, I was often, um, overlooked or, you know, not picked on the top teams or really, really had to just work my butt off in order to get a starting spot or court time or whatever it was. So, um, that same type of that hard work and persistence did pay off for me. And I also learned the value of walking away. Um, and when you feel like your worth is not being recognized, like volleyball was actually my first experience of that. I remember in high school, I didn't make, um, I just, I kicked ass at this tryout for a competitive team. And, you know, all the parents were coming up to me afterward and telling me how great they did. And there's no way that I'm not going to make the team. And then I didn't. And I think that was because of, you know, bias of the previous me, the one that hadn't had all that training the prior summer or put in the work. And, um, I was offered the second team spot and that's when I decided, you know what, I, I, I'm going to walk away from this. It's not so important to me that I want to accept something that's, that I feel like I just, I deserve more here and I wasn't getting it. And, um, that actually opened some doors to me in another Avenue, which opened up Fordham. So it, it worked out, but that was, um, that willingness to, to not exactly quit, but to say, I'm not going to accept that bar and look for something else was like, was a, a meaningful moment for me as an 18 year old. You know, it's interesting you say that because I eventually in college walked away from basketball and I, I, you know, I had, I had gone from the guy who was one of the first people in the gym to just coming in five minutes before practice and almost dreading practice and realizing that, and I, and, and this, this was my junior year and I had gone through preseason conditioning, which I'm sure it was even more intense for you at Fordham. You know, it, it's not fun uh, <laughs> to get up at 5 a.m. and run till you puke. And, and I ended up um, quitting. And I remember bawling in the locker room after and but yet it, it opened up a bunch of new doors and, and but even before I quit, I had interest in doing all these different things, which really, when I look back now, some of the, you know, the limited success I've had, I think can go back to literally that decision and the doors that opened up to create new opportunities for me to gain new skills that I, I still use today. So I think it's a different, but, but similar in that respect. Yeah. I, I, what you said about being the first person in an hour ahead of time and versus five minutes before I'd started to feel that as well and started to feel really burnt out. And I think it was, uh, you know, in my case I had quit and then I decided to, to rejoin eventually, but I, I, I empathize with that feeling and that's kind of where I was at too. Like this is, it's just not bringing me joy right now. It's, it felt 
hard to the point where I wasn't getting much reward out of it. Got it. Any, anything noteworthy? I mean, I know you were the captain of your, your volleyball team. I know you were uh, president of the student athlete advisory council. So clearly there is this leadership interest or muscle being developed in college that carried over in your professional career you know, anything worth noting on that before we sort of jump into post Fordham life and how it impacted you down the road? I think being a college um, sports team captain is really tough because you, um, in a lot of ways, you're kind of the fun police, or at least your coaches are relying on you to be like, you, um, you're the person who needs to set the example on the team. And granted, that's the, the appointment or the nomination is coming because you've already done that. But um, you, I think when you're in one of those leadership positions, um, are forced to sometimes take a higher road or one that you don't necessarily even want to be on, but you have to because that's the title that you have. And um, it's that was really probably the closest I'd come to what I'd say is like modern day management in the corporate world. Um, because you have to get a team or help at least get a team rallied and bought in, um, and excited to go do a whole bunch of suicides or run up the bleachers 15 times or, you know, whatever the punishment was at the time and, and make everyone feel justified that we are doing it. Um, you know, set the example, um, around drinking in, you know, during season and things like that. So, um, that was definitely that type of adjustment that I felt from going just to being a player to a captain. And then also it was the same type of transition I felt when I went from being an individual contributor to a manager for the first time. And all of a sudden it was like, Oh, everyone sees me as a little bit different now. And, and that just is the burden of being in the leadership position occasionally. I don't know if that if that resonates with your experience at all. No, it does, and it 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 makes me think of uh, something that I'm, I'm making a note to come back to. But you know, the one thing I appreciated about sports in general, and particularly college sports, is it pushed me farther than I thought I could ever go, and. Now, you know, and you, I don't doubt that your, your new industry is pretty intense, but the ad tech industry in which we work together in is, is pretty intense, especially in Q4. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it provided, it, it still to this day provides me this thing where every year I'm like, it's, you know, sort of the break between Christmas and New Year's Eve. And I'm like, well, that's it. Like that's as much as I can give, you know, I'll never get pushed further than this year. And then the next year, the same thing happens over again. And and that's, that's really cool for me. And, and it's, it's, it's something I appreciate it. And it makes me think a lot about getting up at 4.30 AM and then getting to the gym at 5 AM and then running four and a half miles and (laughs) sitting in a push up position while you're like, arms are like moving all over the place because you're sweating. It's just, it, I think that whatever can create that, 
the ability to kind of go further than you think. I, I find it very rewarding, even in my career to this day. I think parenting also provides that because you're just like so tired <laughs> all the time that you're, you know, do you, do you feel that at all too? I, I, I find myself thinking about those preseason days more than I would ever want to, I guess. I, I have definitely thought about those preseason days and I totally know what you mean. Um, I, I do marvel at just how far I was pushed physically and, and mentally because you are, you're right. You're not sleeping a lot. Mm-hmm. You've been traveling, you're cramming in whatever reading you need to do on the bus on the way back from a game, um, only to get up at, you know, five the next day and repeat it all again. Um, I actually think more often than, um, those, those physical push points, the nervousness and, um, the sense of having to be on when a game started. Um, and that's largely come when I've been in public speaking mm-hmm. engagements, whether that's with a client or in a meeting that I really just want to nail. I get the same feeling that I had before a volleyball game where I was just so amped. <laughs> Sometimes nervousness was causing that feeling. A lot of time it was a mix of nervousness and just wanting to crush it. Um, and, being able to handle and coach myself through those feelings um, is something I learned to do playing volleyball that um, I try to tap back into when I'm uh, presenting or I really, mostly when I really want to nail a meeting because it's important. hundred percent. I feel the same way. It's, it's like you get to relive sports. Those Mm -hmm. butterflies are in my stomach before a big presentation, a big meeting, a speaking engagement absolutely and then and then it's sort of like a game right like you you the event ends and then you sort of reflect on it and you either won or lost to a certain degree and then you sort of analyze the meeting or the speech or the presentation and then you incorporate that feedback into the next one yeah and you're just as sweaty as like at least i am usually (laughs) yep 100 percent. so what did you study at Fordham? And then let's dovetail into your, your actual career. Cause you've, you've done a lot of great things. And again, you're one of the most talented people I've worked with. So I want to make sure we, we give this part of your life. It's due. Um, at Fordham, I, I bounced around to, to various majors quite a bit. So I started and was accepted as a business major and my freshman year, um, coincided with the start of the, uh, financial crisis, the late financial crisis. And I remember looking around at, um, I guess what my, my peers are valuing, or at least a lot of what I was reading in the news. And I remember saying on the phone to my dad, like, you know, I'm just not sure about this whole business thing. It feels kind of unethical, which is a very naive comment to make in retrospect, but something wasn't sitting right with me. Um, based on what I was observing about the financial crisis. So I decided, you know, I want to do something that's a little bit closer to what I've, I've liked and enjoyed in the past in high school. And that was art. So, um, I decided to, to switch and become an art history major. And then the financial crisis got really bad and everyone was like, what are you going to do for a job with an art history degree? And I was like, yeah, that's probably, you know, I started to realize maybe my prospects weren't so, um, prosperous. Um, so I switched again and became a sociology major cause I'd started to take 
sociology classes and philosophy classes as part of my um, general ed requirements and really liked uh, sociology in particular. So I did that and um, switched my major a, a third time, I guess, and ended up at the end of my tenure at Fordham. I double majored in sociology and communication. And uh, I picked up a minor in business uh, because I had a bunch of classes for my freshman year um, under my belt and had to take about three or four more to, to finish out that, that minor. So I had a pretty full, all in, I with all the switching, I had a pretty full course load. Were you able to finish in four years? Yeah, I did finish in four years. Um, yeah, I got to, like I said, I, I got really good at studying in high school. So ended up using my bus time, um, in volleyball to get a lot of that reading and paper writing done. What year did you graduate? I graduated in 2012. Okay. So what, what did you walk out and do next? I, um, my, the second semester of my senior year of college, I'd started to set my sights on tech, um, which was, was not really taking a prominent place in career fairs at Fordham or I think in the New York city area in general, um, New York was still had a very heavy media finance fashion presence. And at Fordham, it was a very heavy media finance accounting. Um, but I started, I'd started to pay attention to companies um, like Facebook and Apple and um, e-commerce companies that were big at the time and decided like, I want to get into that industry because it seems like where things are going. And at that point I had had no internship or career experience whatsoever working at a tech company. So I told myself, you know, even though I'm principal, I'm really against unpaid internships the last semester of my senior year, I'll take an unpaid internship and my goal is to get it at a tech company and we'll see where we go from there. So, um, I took an unpaid internship at, at guilt, which doesn't sound like a tech company, but what they were doing on the e-commerce side was actually pretty, um, new and sophisticated at that time. Like them and Groupon were managing huge volumes of internet traffic because they were putting on flash sales. And so, um, you know, we would never think of Gilt as a tech company now, but I think in 2012 it was a little bit it was a little bit more marketable as one um, as an e-commerce company. So I had an internship there, really liked it, um, and started to put feelers out with other small startups in the city. And I ended up not uh, deciding to take a job at Gilt when I graduated, but I moved to a, a small 13-person company called Challenge Post and. Today, they're rebranded as DevPost, and they put together hackathons and software competitions that are sponsored by big tech companies or city agencies. So like if Apple or Amazon or Google has a new API or set of data that they want um, developers integrating into their existing applications or, or using to build new apps, whether those are mobile or web um, they would come to challenge post and say, Hey, we have this new cool tech. We want people using it. Can we pay you to market, um, and screen entries to this competition and then later award prize money. And so my job, um, 
was with them doing a, a lot of different things, but mostly customer support and marketing. Thank you. And and for those who might not be as familiar with Guilt, that's an online luxury brand website. Could you just give us sort of a run? You know, if someone has like myself, who I haven't necessarily thought about Guilt in a while, not that I'm yeah maybe um, <laughs> the target customer, but just for those who might not be familiar, could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So Guilt is um, is a e-commerce site, and they have a couple of different. Um, verticals. The their main one was women's fashion, so luxury, high end uh, fashion that they would buy wholesale from designers and then um, sell at a discount in flash sales. So the um, the appeal was that you, as a consumer, you thought the merchandise was going to run out, and you better get it before it does, um, else you're going to miss out on this price. And so it was a pretty successful model. And, um, like I said, Groupon was one that also kind of helped take advantage of the flash sale model. Um, so they later moved into different verticals like, you know, menswear or home or, um, events and experiences. So the internship that I had was around events and experiences. Um, so we'd curate things like whiskey takings with tastings with Diageo or some other luxury brand, and then sell the tickets in, um, a flash sale model. Sounds brilliant to me, especially the whiskey part. <laughs> yeah. You, you said something that I've, I've even, I even thought myself when I went to, went into tech and, and the quote is sort of, you know, you were interested because that's where things were going. And, you know, back in 2012, now we're in 20, 2020. I mean, it, it's interesting that, and you mentioned Facebook, it's, it's, do you do you like where things are going in tech space, particularly with companies like Facebook and Google? Like, do you think? I, I mean, it seems particularly poignant now. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but just do you have thoughts on? You know, the other thing, I, I, maybe another entry point here is I was telling people on my team a few weeks ago. It's you know, I think I think we think of you know in the two thousands or even you know. Um, maybe a little after that, you know, in, in your graduation period of like, oh, I want to go join a tech company, right? That was the thing. It's because that's where things are going. Mm-hmm. And the thing I said the other day is, and we were sort of talking about media and tech, but my my t- two things, I don't necessarily love where things are going in tech, but I also think that like, you don't work at tech, a tech company anymore. I mean, there's, out, there's always going to be outliers, but it's like, if you're not, leveraging technology in your business, then your my feeling is your days are, are probably numbered. Do you, do you have a reaction to either of those things? I think, I think you're absolutely right that, um, that the presence of tech usage is so prevalent that if you're not using tech in your business, your days are numbered. I think, um, I do think though that it's, it's fair to say, that you work in tech because not every company is producing technology, more are consumers of it. Um, so I still have a lot of faith in at least that as a, a business that's continued to last people who, who, you know, build software companies that build software. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of where, where like the big tech is going. Um, no, I don't know. I don't love where it's going. That's partially why I decided to get out of, um, ad tech um, because 
And I know that, uh, you know, the company that you and I worked for, we got, we get to claim quite a few differences between Google and Facebook and um, other such companies. Um, but I started to want to do something that to me felt um, a little bit more tangible. And I, I started to um, look for something that would have uh, a broader impact on a, a day-to-day person because the advertising aspect started to make me feel icky at times. And granted, I was in a role where I was designing and building the algorithms that decided which ad you were served. Um, so I was very close to it. And um, I kind of want, I started to look for something that, um, that, that felt more real and impactful just to my day-to-day life. And that was a, that was a personal choice. Um, but, but nonetheless was one that I, that I don't regret. And, um, I had to think really long and hard about before I made it. Yeah. And I think that's a good, good segue into your next stop in your career before Nautilus, right? Abnexus was next. Yeah. So I, um, I moved from, from challenge post to app nexus because i thought that ad tech was so cool like i truly did i was like and i still do it's it's an incredible technical feat like what goes on in the background of ad tech um and i remember learning about uh that that this was happening because i had a friend who worked in the industry and i was like wow that's amazing like you can target ads at people based on like you know all this stuff like that's so weird. Can you do this? Can you do that? And I remember I just, I was fascinated. And so I, I was actually, I really wanted to be part of an ad tech company. Um, and I asked him, what's one of the, um, what's one of the better companies that you would recommend in the space? Like I, one with a great culture that's growing. And he was like, Oh, definitely app Nexus. You should check them out. Like they're doing really big things. They're going to be big one day. And I was like, great. So I, I remember I stalked the job board for, for a while. And, um, finally a role popped up that I felt I was qualified for. Um, cause most of the other roles had required at least maybe three to five years of experience. And at that point I'd had a year, a year and a half, um, and, um, applied, you know, as you know, you interviewed me, um, that went well. And, uh, I stayed there for the next six years. And I joined as, I guess it's relevant to say, I joined as a um, technical account manager. So I did not start in product. I joined uh, as part of like the customer success or services team. Yeah. And I, I think it's worth, you know, in terms of tactical insights for the listener here of how, you know, the interview process for tech companies, and I'm, I'm only limiting it to that because I can't. I've been in tech for a while and I, I can't really speak to it's, it's pretty rigorous and it's pretty diligent. And I know a lot of people know that. And I remember in your interview, you know, there, there is this component of a behavioral interview, mm-hmm. uh, which we called Rockstar, And then that changed to high potential. And the idea of that interview is like, Hey, can you, if you put this person in any situation, are they going to figure it out? And and the one story that blew away Brandon Atkinson, who was sort of the head of services at the time, was you, you tore your ACL, right? And mm-hmm. can, can you kind of talk about a little bit about, and, and you were on the other side too, doing the interviewing at one point. So just talk about the, the interview process, but I also think that's a good story 
where you sort of nailed what a lot of companies are, are looking for? Yeah, I, I think I remember the question, um, which was, tell me about a time that you failed. And um, I think that that we at UpNexus, we asked that question because we wanted to get a sense of grit and, um, you know, didn't want to hire people who had everything, I guess, handed to them um, or you know, everything was easy and they hadn't faced much hardship, um, whatever hardship meant. And um, my my answer is that I had failed at, um, at volleyball, which was very important to me and recovering from an ACL injury. Um, and that was a, that was a really big, um, setback for me, um, and changed just the, my own awareness of my abilities and, uh, my identity. So this, you know, my sophomore year of, of college, I was in the middle of a game and I took a really small jump to get a ball over my head and, uh, came down, felt a whole bunch of gross sensations in my knee and, you know, fell. And within a couple of hours found out that I tore my ACL. And for those who don't know, uh, the details of an ACL tear, it's, it's, I think the most serious injury you could have in your knee. Um, it, your ACL is a ligament that stabilizes your knee, not just uh, front and back, but also side to side. And um, things get really clunky if that's not intact. So most people, if not all, have surgery. And um, I was out for that season. It was my sophomore year. And I was told it would be a nine-month recovery. So I would barely make it until the following season. I'd have a couple of months over the summer to start to get ready for the following season. And um the surgery was intense. The pain afterward was really intense. I atrophied all of my muscle. I went from being a starting freshman, you know, and carried that spot my sophomore year to sitting on the bench and not impacting the team at all. I was no longer playing. I felt like I'd lost a huge part of my identity during the time that I was injured. Um, cause I wasn't traveling. And, um, then when it came time to actually start the season, my junior year, I'd done all of the rehab. I'd worked my butt off, um, going, just lifting weights, running, sprinting, getting myself ready. And I did all the right things. I followed all the right steps. I did exactly what my doctors told me. I put in time above and beyond, and I just didn't get what I wanted. I just, I wasn't ready my body didn't recover. Um, and it was a, it was a lesson to me that you can act perfectly and do everything exactly as people tell you, but sometimes it, life's just not going to hand you the, the deal that you want. And that was a really, really tough lesson for me to learn because despite those values that we talked about, my parents instilling in me and their appreciation for hard work and encouragement of me and my sister to put in that same hard work. It was a, it was a lesson in that like sometimes hard work's just not going to get you there. And there are other circumstances at play. And that was the first time in my life that I experienced that. Um, and really had to reflect on it actually until that interview at Nexus. Yeah. And it was, it was an awesome answer. It, it sealed the deal among other things. 
You know, it's funny. My daughter's been on this kick lately, and now my son is too. Where they'll say, "That's not fair," <laughs> and my response is, "Yeah, maybe it's not." And that's that's just how life works. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes life is not fair. So get used to it. So you you had a pretty, as you said, you you were there for six years, which is a pretty long time. And you, I, I want to sort of unpack because I, I think. I mean, I know you were a high performer. You did a lot of things. So can you, you know, and again, we, we, we were on the same team. Um, and I think the dynamics changed, but I'd, I'd love to hear sort of you tell your story about, and I think there's a lot, this is where we're going to get like to the, the, the gold of the conversation in terms of takeaways, a lot of the stuff you did or learned or experienced along the way. So I, I'll, I'll let you just kind of tell your your journey at Nexus, and then maybe I can chime in if it makes sense. Yeah. So I, I started on the, the services team with you. You were, um, I guess at first you were um, not my manager. I had a, another manager for a very short period. And then um, within a couple of months, uh, I was reporting to you. And we were on a services team at a little startup within a startup, as I'd classify it, where our product was not a great fit for the customer segment we were servicing. Um, they were skeptical of our value, rightfully so. Um, and these very small four-person services team that was making them successful um, really had to, to put in the work driving home insights, making them feel successful, working with our product team um, to understand pain points that were not being prioritized. And we really made up for that in grit and hours and just brute force trying to make this, this one particular client who was very important to our business successful. Um, it took a lot of patience. It took a lot of um, willingness to to work with difficult people who wanted nothing to do with you. And I, I mean that more on the, the client's end. Um, yeah. And uh, at the end of that, I, I think I also got handed because of that situation, a client that no one really wanted to work on that much. Like I remember when I joined, I got a couple of like, Oh, you're on such and such like, good luck. And I was like, Oh great. What's that mean? Um, but, but, as you know, we succeeded and we ended up making that client and that segment enormously successful. Um, I, it remains, I think, one of the largest clients that are part of the, the current portfolio um, at the business now and definitely part of one of the biggest segments at the business now. Um, so that little startup when the startup ended up becoming uh, one of the most important client segments that we had. Um, and I'm not sure how much you want me to talk about um, kind of what happened after services, but um, I moved from a individual contributor position on the team to being a team lead where you're informally managing a couple of um, others on the team. And then I um, moved into a management position uh, about a year and a half later. So I think I remained in services about three and a half years before I transitioned into product um, just something that I'd had my eye on for a time. I really appreciated that the, that company and that you as a manager had 
put so much emphasis on long-term career goals and really showed that you valued those conversations. And I, you know, I'll, I'll never forget something that you used to say, which was, I don't want you, um, or I want you to walk away from this team thinking that was the best team I was ever a part of. And it definitely was. And that's because you and everyone else cared so much about the success of us, not just then that day or within the context of that client or that part of the business, but like, how are we building upon what we're doing to make you a better person 10, 15, 20 years down the road? And that trust that I think was established both ways between employee and manager helped me feel confident in asking for the next thing that I needed, which was, I wanted to move into product. Like, how can I do that? Yeah. And thank you for that. And a couple things I would add, I think, you know, the, the, the client you're referencing, I mean, that, that to me is a great example of persistence because I think we all who touched that account felt like for a long time, you're talking like, a year, maybe two of just banging your head against the wall and not really getting anywhere. But because of the reasons you mentioned, we racked up big wins mm-hmm. and, and we, a lot of the time we spent building relationships and creating value and, and just continuing to stick with it, I think paid dividends. And I think, you know, it, it was the thing I was always impressed at at that stage of your career is, you know, I mean, you were probably still only like what a few years out of college, and to see someone in their, you know, mid twenties sort of oscillate between vice presidents and entry level individual contributors was was really amazing to see at that early in your career. I mean, it's it's something that people 10, 15 years in their career might not have. What would you attribute that to if, if you agree with it? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, I think that part of it, well, tr- treating the, I guess the way I'd want to frame that is I think that I did a good job treating the entry-level employee as someone who is just important and worthy of respect as the VP. Um, like that was, that's one angle to take there. And, um, that probably comes from my parents or just the the values that I grew up with, or or perhaps feeling like an underdog myself in certain avenues of life. Um, I, I do think that, um, or at least I've witnessed titles and levels dictating far too much, how much, um, attention, or time someone gets. And I think I, maybe that was coming from also being junior and feeling that chip on my shoulder. Um, I think the confidence in talking to that VP came from um, my experiences probably in volleyball. And I'd, I'd go as far as to say some of the training perhaps that I had in high school where the, the worst thing that's gonna happen to you when you're talking, well, I guess I could have been fired. So that was a possibility, but like the worst thing that was going to happen is that I look 
stupid or I make the client look stupid. And we all know that that was the biggest risk. So I just needed to focus on staying calm and controlling my emotions and making sure that I was communicating clearly and earning the trust of that person by not letting my nervousness get a hold of me. And I, the reason I say I think volleyball is relevant is that you're doing that all the time in sports. Um, so, so I maybe attribute that level-headedness to the experience that I got in sports, or at least the training that helps train me and make me capable of that at a younger age than maybe most in your words. Yeah. And I, I really, I want to double click on that comment you, you said about sort of like treating people the same. I think it's really important in a career. And I've always thought about it in a way where I try to, 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 to treat the, the doorman or doorwoman, for example, of, you know, the office building in New York City the same way that I would treat the CEO and get to know them and establish a relationship and figure out what they're interested in. And I should have said this at the top, but you and I are meeting the evening of September 30th, 2020. And I think, you know, we're about 30 or so days away from an election that definitely feels like it's going to like, our country's going to burn either way, no matter what happens to some degree. And the thing that I think that the values that you're talking about and how you were raised and probably how I was raised, it's if we just treated each like, and I definitely feel like we're like, it, it's, it's almost like if, if you don't agree with me and I think this is where like diversity and I'm kind of going in a different direction, but I'd, I'd be interested in your perspective. Like, I don't, I think if we had that attitude that you're talking about and sort of walk, walk around within your career and life would be particularly helpful right now in terms of not just, you know, skin color, gender, you know, affiliations, but actually like rich, poor, you know, all those things. If, if everyone is, you know, sort of deserves our respect and, and love to some degree, I think it would move the needle. And I also think that what I'm observing is a lot of, and this sort of straddles like non-career and career, but like in career, you know, diversity and inclusion is an important initiative. It's definitely hot in tech companies and other companies. But what I'm finding is inclusivity is not, I think, as prioritized or focused as it should be because it's like, hey, if you, and this is where I think it gets to some of the current events, it's like, if you don't agree with me, then you're out versus this sort of like, intellectual curiosity around, okay, well, this person doesn't agree with me. They have a different perspective. Instead of just calling them a name, maybe we can establish some common ground and, and, and say, okay, this, we have some common ground. This is a good person. And, and then we can get to the more difficult topics. And I think what I've seen you do, and I've, I've tried to do as well is you sort of do that, right? Like you build that relationship, you establish respect, and then you can get to the harder things in business or, or, um, you know, sort of like modern day current events. Like that's a little all over the place. So I apologize for that. But do you, do you have any thoughts there? Like, I just feel like what you were talking about, Reza, would, would I would like to see more of that in the world in general, I guess. Yeah, I think, um, I think one of the things that I tend to get frustrated at, at least these days is this, um, 
like to to use, I guess, an extreme example of the spectrum, like cancel culture, yeah. uh, which might be what you're getting at. And mm-hmm. um, that's really frustrating for me because I, like, I think that it comes down to empathy and understanding why someone might have that point of view or, and maybe you disagree with it and you uh, think it's a disgusting point of view or whatever the adjectives are that you want to attach to it, but it's coming from somewhere. And I, I think it's important to understand why it's coming from that place. Um, What's triggering someone to believe that and like truly have the empathy to try to, to find that ground or that, or at least that understanding before passing the quick judgment or the the cancellation, if you will. Um, It's really difficult to do. And I find myself, you know, I can't, I'm by no means perfect at this. And, you know, a lot of my inner thoughts probably aren't reflective of what I just said. Um, I'm ashamed to say, but I do think that the, what you just described and then what I described around interacting with clients does come down to having a, a level of empathy. Someone's frustrated. Someone's upset. Someone's saying this thing. It's coming from somewhere. Why is it coming from that place? Um, and like, you're not going to bridge any gaps unless you try to uncover what that is and truly have empathy and curiosity around what the problem is. Yeah. I, I couldn't say it any better. Thank you. And so, so going back to Abnexus and the Tamriel, I, I think what I think is a cool moment. And if I'm um, messing up some of the details, keep me honest, but you know, you were a great Tam, eventually I think a senior Tam. And then, you know, we started to have conversations about what's next. And you had an interest in both product and management. And if I recall correctly, at that moment, the product avenue, you know, wasn't viable. I, I don't know if there were Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't viable. I think more so because of like openings and things like that. And so we we sort of came up with a plan to pivot into management. And so I, and then and then I think it's I, th- I, th- I really think this is a cool story. So talk a little bit about assuming you know a leadership role and sort of some of the things that you learned and and, and found important. And then I think you know then we came back to then then the product thing opened up. And I think you know. You, you obviously went through went through with that, and it was great. And and so I, I think we should maybe unpack some of the conversations and events that happened around that that time period, if if that's cool. Yeah. So I, I you're remembering it correctly. I had expressed an interest in going into product, but I wasn't quite sure if it was the right time or the right. I think maybe perhaps also the right time for me, but also the right time in the company to go into product because I think I remember maybe we had just had a shakeup or a reorg or something like that. And, Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I, the, the Avenue wasn't viable. And so I decided I also have an interest in management and I had a great opportunity to get management experience under someone who's willing to teach it to me, um, under principles that I respect. And I remember thinking, okay, you have these two avenues, one where you don't really know what you're getting and the other one where you know what you're getting pretty clearly and you need, you need those skills. You're going to want those skills eventually, um, you know, do the, do the management role. And, um, I'm so happy that I did do that because I think that the overlap 
between what you learn as a leader and a manager is so relevant to product. Um, I, I t- mentioned this earlier, but I think as when you're in your first time management position, I certainly experienced a pivot where I felt all of a sudden a little bit othered where I was no longer part of the crew. I was now responsible for some tough conversations. I was responsible for helping to get resourcing. Uh, As with most services teams, our team was kind of chronically always under-resourced. And um, you really have to, as a manager, help push a team to do more with less a lot of times. And that, that was difficult because... I I knew that I felt the same way that that they did, um, but you had to have that that peppy attitude and encouraging um, those encouraging words, um, and then also sometimes deliver tough conversations. So, being a captain in volleyball was definitely a help with that. I think I also had a great template with you as a manager that I'll give you credit for in, in navigating a lot of those conversations, but. I say it's relevant to product and really helped me later in product because um, in product, like one of the most important things that you do is prioritize and negotiate. And as a manager, I feel like that's also one of the most important things you're doing. You're not necessarily prioritizing product requests, but you're, you have an inbound queue of work. Usually it's um, assigning your team's resources to clients or projects or whatever it is that your team's responsible for. And usually the number of clients or projects outweighs what your team can actually accomplish. And so you have to make tough trade-off decisions or have negotiations with managers from those other teams or figure out how to make it work by borrowing. Um, and that's the same thing that you do in product, but we're just talking about different resources or you know different types of projects. And um, being able to hone that ability and have those conversations and be an ally while also asking for something um, I, I do think I learned first in management. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and you were a great, a great manager. And I think, you know, I, I liked what you said earlier of, I think you said the burden of leadership. And I think it really, it really is a burden to some degree. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I think it's, a lot of people sort of look at that track as a way to grow their career. And I think there's really two important parts of leadership that you had and, you know, discovered is, is interest and capability. And so I think, you know, what was cool, was cool about you is, is sort of maybe a couple of years into the management gig, the product stuff came back up. And again, it was this inflection point. And you had just gotten promoted to manager, not not well-deserved and, and not long after you were in it. And, and so there's a couple things here that I find. I, th- I think, and, and I'd love to get your reaction. I think the earlier you can find out whether you like managing humans and or are good at it is really powerful because it, it, it if, if you do it earlier in your career like you did you sort of know if you're good at it and you know if you like it and and the liking part is it's it's like any other job right there's great parts of it you can definitely have an impact on people's lives and their careers and but there's not fun parts of it right like the difficult conversations the you know achieving business goals and things like that but it is highly rewarding at the end of the day and so 
so I think, I think in, you know, the, the example of where this sort of can go wrong is the traditional sort of like a sales person who's very, he or she is very good at hitting their sales targets. And it's like, Oh, we've got this rock star salesperson. Let's promote them, him or her to a sales manager. And those are very different muscles. Mm-hmm. And, and just because you were good at one doesn't mean you're going to be good at the other. And if you're a hunter, well, you're not really hunting as much anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, you sort of went down this track. I think you established yourself as interested and capable at, at a pretty high level. And then the product thing came across. And what was cool is I think, again, one of the conversations we had was, Hey, you know, you don't just because, and, and again, if you find like yourself where you're good at it and you like it, that doesn't mean you have to do it for the next 30 years, no matter <laughs> what. Right. And so what I think is cool about the story and I'll let you tell it is you sort of went away from it to go pursue something else. And then you sort of brought it back down the road. I just think it's a really cool mm-hmm. story. So I'll, I'll leave it to you to tell it. Yeah. Um, so I did really, I got a lot of joy out of management there. And to your point, there's a lot of parts I didn't like as well, but, um, but mostly really rewarding, but I still, there's this lingering sense of, you know, I want to do product. That's, that's what what's next for me. Sorry, so, Megan, what were some of the parts you didn't like? Yeah. I, um, I think sometimes as a manager, I felt like I was always in a battle with someone, not necessarily my direct reports, but more with other departments or teams. And that largely comes to, I think, like just resourcing challenges when you have more work than you have people to do it. You're trying to protect your team, but also meet an outcome for the business. And that, um, yeah, I, I think just as a people pleaser, I don't like having to say no to others. And granted, I had to justify those no's, but there was a lot of just tough conversations where um, I had to say to people in sales or from other departments, we can't do, we just can't do this. And here's why. And this is my reasoning or the priority the, these other priorities are more important. And that was just never fun. Um, right. That, that was probably the part that sticks out to me the most. Cool. Sorry. So continue on with the product. Yeah. Um, the, so with product, that was something that was just a lingering desire. It had been in the back of my head. And I had been helping to support on the services side um, a new product that um, our team was developing internally and we were kind of like eating our own dog food. So we had a team that I was helping to manage uh, that was using that for their day-to-day job, but then also we were selling that product to customers. And um, I remember seeing an email that our CEO had sent out to customers. So it was addressed to an an email list that was, I think almost hundred percent comprised of our clients and I was somehow on it. And uh, the gist of the email was, hey, we are going to be releasing this um, new feature and replacing it with what you use today or replacing what you use today with this new feature. Um, We've been piloting it for the last X months. And before we force you into it, we just want to make sure that we are gathering all the appropriate feedback, making sure it's a good fit. So if you have feedback, here's my email, email me directly. And I remember seeing that and going, well, I have lots of opinions on this. And like, I'm not a client, but I think they need to know. So I had 
wrote up this long email and I sat down with uh, various members of our team at the time and gathered some of their feedback and incorporated it into the email. And I remember stating, you know, what was good about the product, how, what it had improved, um, where we should, like where it's really adding value. And then the majority of it was where we're not adding value and where it's still causing pain and the problems that it still has and what we need to fix. And I think I suggested a couple of different ways we might fix this and the trade-offs of each. And I had fired that off to the to our CEO and I said, you know, hey, Brian, you know, this is Megan over here on the fourth floor. Like, here are my thoughts on, on what you had asked. And I didn't quite realize this. Like, you know, he sent a thank you. This is great. But what I didn't quite realize is that that email has started to make the rounds internally and got forwarded around to a bunch of places and um, kind of was my foot in the door in into product. Um, what happened, um, the, the, the details is that I had come to you and I said, hey, you know how we talked about product a couple of months ago? I, I think I really want to apply for a position and start having a conversation with, you know, the VP. Can I do that? And you were like, did someone already come talk to you? And I was like, no. And you're like, oh, well, Sats and Jets just came to ask me that same question, if they could talk to you about a role. So the stars kind of aligned there. And what I didn't know at the time, but later learned is that the reason that that person wanted to come talk to you about poaching me um, was because of that email. And um, it had got around and someone said, hey, Megan has opinions on this. Let's see if she's interested. Um, and it, it, we kind of went from there. What do you, what do you think the takeaway is from that story? Um, I think that uh, it's the takeaway is to go ahead and take chances and do things that feel scary because they're probably not all that scary. Um, and I say that like with a grain of salt, I guess you, my takeaway is evaluate what the worst possible scenario is from, from you doing that scary, scary thing. And if that worst possible scenario is reasonable and, and realistic, but you're okay with it, what are the, what is the harm in taking that leap and making that jump? Like if the worst possible thing is that someone thinks that you said something via email that was a little off base, like that wasn't going to hurt my reputation that much. If you're asking for a, a raise or a new position, the worst thing that your manager is going to do, as long as you ask for it respectively, respectfully and make a good case is say no. And then you can have a plan and maybe you decide your plan before you take the leap and you go, okay, if this is the scenario, my path is this. If this other scenario happens, I have plan B. Or maybe your plan is just, I'm going to have a plan to reevaluate if I don't get the thing that I want. And that's fine. But I think for me, it was really important to imagine what's the worst thing that can happen here. Am I okay with the worst thing? Okay. Yes. Go do this. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Right. Like the worst thing that would have happened in that situation is probably just got deleted. Exactly. Yeah. But if I hadn't done that, I don't know that I would have made it into the product team. Right. Right. Or it would have, would have taken longer. And I think for me, you know, it's, just just to give my perspective, I mean, I really enjoyed working with you and I thought that we, you know, we had worked together long enough where I don't know if you felt this way, but like I could, we, if we were in a meeting together, like I knew 
what you were thinking, what you were probably <laughs> going to say before you did. And it got to the point where, and I feel this way about my leadership team now, it's whatever gets thrown at us, like we'll, we'll be able to figure it out. And, and that's a really cool feeling. And, and we, you know, spend a lot of time at work and, you know, I have an amazing wife and, and two kids and, and yet the people I talk to and, you know, hang out the most with are, you know, people I work with. And so there's this element of, you know, I think an initial reaction for a manager in that situation is like, oh, I don't, I don't want to lose this person. Right. Or, and, and for me, it was interesting for a couple of reasons because, you know, you, when you, I think good managers and leaders, you, you care about your people as individuals and you sort of use the vehicle that you're in, whether it's company and industry to push that person towards their potential. And so, you know, in my case, slinging ads on the internet is, is interesting and it's, it's, you know, still to this day, like an interesting problem. And, you know, I haven't watched the social dilemma yet, so it's in my Netflix queue. So we'll see (laughs) after, but like, it's just a vehicle to do something I love. And so with you, it was like, of course you have to go to product, right? Cause you're going to crush it and it's what you want to do. And then for me, it was an interesting test of like, are we building a team and culture that can sort of have people come and go and, and it can sustain and, and continue to, to perform at a high level. And I think, you know, the one thing is, and, and I want to start winding down because you've been very generous with your time tonight and I know we're <laughs> way over is I felt like even, you know, earlier in your career, you seem to do a very good job of advocating for yourself and establishing relationships and, and doing it in a real like genuine, thoughtful, transparent way. And I, I, I you know, I just wanted to kind of get your reaction on if you agree and, and how you've done that and, and, the, and maybe any tips for anyone who, who struggles with, with doing those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, something that I have thought about uh, s- since my time leaving your team is uh, how, how much I didn't have to advocate for myself in comparison to how much others sometimes need to do. So I, I'll start by saying, I think I was very lucky um, that you as a manager or other managers that I've just had in the past have been very good at advocating for me where I didn't have to do a lot. And, it, you know, you might say that's because of my hard work or what I demonstrated. And that's probably true. But um, in the times that I have where I felt like I needed to advocate for myself or whether it was sticking up for myself or asking for a raise or whatever it was, um, I, I just tried to keep in mind what I had said earlier, which was like, you have a worth and you have a bar and a value and you think it's this, I'm talking to myself here. So like, I think it's this about myself and I, I want to get others to also recognize that. I want to make sure that they also understand that I'm committed if I don't get this, but here's why I really think that I should have it. Um, and let me support that with facts and evidence. And again, I kind of came back to that principle of like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen here? If I ask for this, am I going to damage my credibility and my relationship with this person? Sometimes the answer was yes. And so I wouldn't ask, or I'd say this needs to wait. Um, you know, if I had just gotten a raise, like that's not 
it's probably not the right time to ask for another one six months later. Um, but I kept coming back to, to, okay, you've established trust with someone, you've established a reputation, really, how is this, is this going to land you someplace bad? No. Why not advocate for yourself? Because people can't read your mind and they don't know what's necessarily important to you or why you're unhappy. So if you are, you have to say it because it's really difficult. And I think I experienced that, sorry, I'm rambling a bit here, but I think I experienced that a lot as a manager as well, where sometimes someone would just sideline you and you're like, whoa, I had no idea this was going on. Despite having, I think, a pretty good relationship with people. And a lot of the time, I think that they came out because they were afraid to say what was really on their mind. Whereas as a manager, it would have been really helpful to know that in certain scenarios. And I, I think perhaps as it after experiencing that as a manager, I became even more willing to be forthcoming with like what's going on with me and what I need because I recognize how helpful that is to actually being able to get what I want if my superiors are aware of that. Yeah, 100%. And, and I would add a few things. I mean, I think I'm, I'm hearing, I think I'm hearing a couple of things from you. It's like one is, or, or I, I would say this, like, and I think people, sometimes want to skip this part, but you have to be really good at whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of like the baseline foundation, right? And so in your case, you were very good at what you did. And so for a manager, if you're going in and you're trying to, the, the way I sort of think about it is, and the way I tell people on my team is your job is to make a promotion, a slam dunk Mm -hmm. in the sense that you're so good that I'm going to, you know, be able to go in and, and there's a really strong case. And then my job as a manager is to get it done. And, and ideally you're in a situation and and this was the case for you is like, you're almost setting the, the, the bar for everyone else. that's you know, up for promotion against that. So that's the first thing I like. The other thing you said where, is it's basically self-awareness, right? It's sort of like circumstance, right? Like if you just got promoted in a big race six months ago, probably not the best idea to like ask for something six months later, unless something like dramatic has happened. And I think there's an element too of having faith in that, like, I'm going to go do this, prove myself and then have the case to go. And then the, 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 the third thing I would say is exactly what you're, when you advocate for yourself, you are actually helping your manager, right? So if if you're going into the annual review cycle and your expectation is X and then you get Y and then you tell your manager that you wanted X after the fact, it's a mm-hmm. lot harder for your manager to go get it done than it would have been if you had told them X you know, before the process started. And that was something that I actually learned the hard way. I literally did just that. It was, I, I got the, the annual review and, and then it wasn't what I wanted. And then I sort of put the case together. And, and so, you know, there, there is, you, you, there's an element too, right. Of like, I think what you're also saying is like, you, you sort of got nothing to lose. Right. And then if, if you did that and your manager had some kind of ridiculous reaction, you know, I've worked at places where, I've, I've worked really hard. I've worked seven days a week for multiple years and, and it just never, 
materialized in anything meaningful, both from a growth standpoint, you know, or a narcissistic boss or financial rewards. And then you, you leave in that situation. So either way, there's almost no, nothing to lose because it's like, one is it doesn't happen. And it's sort of like, you know, we just can't do it for whatever reason this time, but we'll try to get you next time. Or, you know, it's, 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 it's a, uh, you know, it becomes this sort of like, um, it's not handled well and you, and you sort of leave with a bitter taste and it's like, well, you probably don't want to be there in the first place or you actually, you know, get what you're asking for or close to it. And maybe you wouldn't have gotten it if you didn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That all resonates. You said that. Um, I think you encapsulated that well. So, so as we wind down, I'd, I'd love to hear, um, like, how do you, do you have any habits or hobbies that sort of feed into your career and, so, and sort of like make you well-rounded or they help you perform at a high level? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think so. I, well, in my personal life, I'm extremely organized, which carries over. I don't know that I could have prevented that from carrying over into my professional life, but um habits are definitely around organization and discipline and like having some routine around what I do. So, um, a simple one would be, um, working out every day. I don't do it every day, but I, I try to do it around five days a week and take a couple of days off. And that is a kind of like my, my morning routine is fairly consistent and gets me in the right headspace. Um, as far as hobbies go, I, um, I do a couple things. I love to cook. Um, that's a pretty big part of my life. And I think that's actually a counterbalance to work in a lot of ways where it lets me let loose and be creative and tap into a side of product management that I, um, you know, I get to dip my toe into, but creativity isn't necessarily a huge part of my role right now, or at least maybe doesn't take up the amount of space that in an ideal world, um, like in an ideal world, I'd probably be doing a hundred percent creative job, um, that had nothing to do with product management when I'm, let's say when I'm 50, like I'd love to do something more artsy or food related. Um, so to that end, I do cook a lot at home, try to cook like a new recipe, try out a new recipe once a week at least and do some experimentation. Um, I also really love design, um, mostly interior design. And so this fall, I'm actually enrolling in a class in classes at Parsons um, here in New York just to stretch that part of my brain that I don't get to exercise very much, tap into something that brings me a lot of happiness and joy and uh, learn a few things because I'm genuinely interested in, um, in seeing where I can take that one day if I decide that that's what I want. Um, trying to think of any other hobbies I have. Um, that's really cool. I didn't know that about the interior design. Yeah. That's been something that's kind of developed in the last few years. Like I had always had an interest in art and I, when I was younger, like in high school, I was enrolled in a lot of art classes and like um, AP art where you build a portfolio and things like that. Um, that hadn't got quite back to that outside of crafting mm -hmm. and um, I'm, I'm really excited. I start in a couple of weeks, uh, the classes online this, this semester. Um, 
but I'll keep you posted, especially because you have a new house. <laughs> yeah. Do you, you mentioned your morning routine. Is, is mm-hmm. there, what does that look like or anything you'd be comfortable sharing there? Yeah. Um, I, so like the plus of the pandemic is that I've been able to get a solid eight hours of sleep a night and generally work out every morning because I've cutting out on an hour and a half of a commute at least every day. Um, so that's been, that's been like a, a blessing. Um, but my morning routine is I usually wake up. I am one of those people who can't do anything without coffee. So like I get the kettle going and make myself a cup of pour over. Um, I'll usually sit and drink that while I do the crossword. I do the crossword every morning, the New York times crossword. Um, most days I get pretty close to completing it, if not completing it. Um, once I finish that, I'll f- turn on one of the, uh, right now, the way I'm working out is uh, via online Peloton classes. So I will uh, put on like a hit boot camp or something like that from Peloton. And uh, I'll do that, shower, have breakfast, and get to work. And I get up early in order to fit all of that in, like, um, around six thirty or so. Uh, so the discipline, I, I guess also starts the night before by also getting to bed early around sometime between 10 and 11. So that's great. Do you, do you feel like crossword puzzles keep you sh- like help stay sharp mentally? Yeah, I think it's a great way to, um, it really warms my brain up for the day. It, if, if you will, like they're definitely, I mean, especially the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with how the New York times crossword progresses, but Monday is the easiest and then Saturday is the hardest and Sunday is hard and that it's just like really long, but definitely Monday through Saturday, like pretty steep incline in terms of difficulty. And, um, so a lot of the clues are, are challenging for sure. Um, but it just gets your brain thinking and I feel like I can approach whatever I need to write that day, whether it's an email or maybe a meeting a little bit quicker because I've already been exercising my brain in a way that's fun for me and doesn't really matter. Like it's, it's just like a game I play every morning with myself. Do you do, you do it like online or do you have the physical? I have a, I know I do it on the, the New York times, um, crossword app. So I'll usually do it on my, my phone. Megan, there's a ton of stuff we didn't get to. So maybe we'll bring you back for part two, (laughs) but I, you know, I want to keep you on schedule here. Um, what's the one, I mean, I, I think you've, you've dropped a lot of knowledge and thank you. What's the one thing you would want folks, whether they're 25 or 55, to walk away and apply to their own career, if, if it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd come back to I, something I've, I think I've mentioned a couple of times, just take chances um, and ask for the things that you need because um, you're in charge of your own destiny in a lot of ways. And um, it's really hard to get what you want if you don't ask for it. Perfect. We'll leave on that now. Megan Oren, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure catching up with you. And I look forward to seeing your work in the Atlantic Ocean soon. I know. This is so fun. Thank you for having me. Of course. Have a good night. Thanks. You too. Thanks again for listening to Career Corner. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Megan. I've included some ways you can connect with Megan and myself in the show notes. So feel free to reach out to either of us. 
Again, if you're enjoying Career Corner, I'd be honored if you would share with others who would also find value in it. And I've got a slate of amazing guests coming up in the weeks and months ahead. So I will talk to you all soon. Take care.